This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. A lot going on this week, and maybe you didn't have the time or the the, uh, mental strength, the emotional strength to follow everything going on. So that's why we get together at the end of the week with local journalists, and uh, we explain and discuss. And this week, we're so happy to have with us Northwest News Network and KUOW correspondent Anna King. Welcome back to the show, Anna. Glad to be here, Bill. Thank you. We've got the former CEO and publisher of the Washington State Wire, D.J. Wilson. Welcome back, D.J. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks, Bill. And so happy to have Publicola's editor, publisher, co-founder, Erica Barnett. Welcome back, Erica. Great to be here. And, of course, we're see- I can see my guests, and you are no different because you can just hop onto YouTube or Facebook. You search KUOW Public Radio, and you'll see the live stream of this program. Before we get into the week's major news stories, I just want to acknowledge the pain you're feeling if you live for opening day, the crack of the bat, the pop of the glove. Uh, Major League Baseball has, you know, locked out its players in a labor dispute. And so at least the first few games of the season are canceled. The Detroit Tigers will not be in T-Mobile Park on March 31st on opening day. Instead, an actual Tiger will fight an actual Mariner in the stadium. And tickets for that have uh, sold out quickly. Okay, so let's jump on to the big news of this week. You know, the war in Ukraine changes by the hour. As we are recording this show live on Friday afternoon, uh, radiation levels look normal so far after Russia attacked a Ukrainian nuclear plant. And Anna King, I begin with that because even before this attack, you were reporting on KUOW on preparations for radiation here in the Pacific Northwest. Would you fill us in? Yeah, it was terribly concerning last night. I was having discussions with my editor um, late into the evening about, you know, what was unfolding in Ukraine. We were both watching video. We were both watching everything coming over the wire. And um, it's just terribly concerning when any power plant has a, a, any kind of uh, accident or problem. Uh, we all remember Fukushima and how real that was just across the Pacific from us in Japan when that happened and, and how scary that incident was. And so this was no different, although the plant design, as it's been reported, is much different than uh either Fukushima or Chernobyl, which was the other accident that lives in everyone's memory. Um, So we're just watching and waiting. But what I like to say is that nuclear power plants are kind of like a time watch. They need regular schedules. They need people who are not tired to run them and they need stability and they need regular maintenance and maintenance shutdown periods to keep the whole thing totally okay. And so war is just the antithesis of that. It's it's just the opposite of anything good for a nuclear power plant. And so I think that's why world leaders and, and the European Union and America is trying to uh, kind of dial in this this problem and try to keep this plant stable as well as others in Ukraine and in the general area 
while this war unfolds. It's just not good for the earth or anybody if this is a problem. And and that's just the relatively passive problem of nuclear fallout. Uh, DJ, we were also talking before the show started about, you know, we should remind listeners, some of whom haven't lived here that long, we are a, a major site for nuclear weapons, something like a third of the nation's active nukes. Yeah, and just to start, let me say kudos to you, Anna, and to your editor for great reporting on this in a way that was thoughtful and careful. And we're just uh, we're lucky to have your reporting here in the Seattle market, but Washington State generally. You know, Seattle on a per capita basis has not just uh, a lot of nukes, but it has a lot of military personnel. The Bangor Air Base is the home for the the nuclear sub force, and that's just across the water in Kitsap. Uh, on the Hood Canal side, we've got JBLM, uh, Fort Lewis and McCord uh, Joint Base down south of Tacoma, which has a tremendous uh, operational footprint in Asia, particularly in Afghanistan during the last 18 years there. Um, so it actually is a logistics hub for most of what happens east of uh, the eastern border of NATO. And you've got would-be Naval Air Station, of course, up out of Oak Harbor and Fairchild over in Spokane is also significant. Uh, so this is a legitimate, you know, this is a, if you were playing World War III on a video game, you would think about Seattle because there's a lot of military footprint here. World War III, I don't think is what we're talking about with Ukraine, but uh, the culture of Seattle often overlooks the military presence, particularly here in Western Washington, but it's real. And, and we're, we're not trying to scare people. Um, and one thing that helps me when I'm feeling that way is to um, I don't know what all the scenarios are. I, I, I'm not going to have uh, agency in a lot of situations. But what can what can the listener do about any of this? Anybody? I think that the listener can be prepared just like they would be for an earthquake as as uh, we had er- earlier spoken about while we were waiting to come on live, it's it's something that every family can have water, can have uh, snacks, can have uh, a pair of tennis shoes by their bed, ready to go. Um, these are things that we can do in our own world to prepare for any type of catastrophe, whether that's an earthquake or uh, some sort of radiological event. And, and then just to educate yourself, to read about um, what would happen or what you should be concerned about and, um, and to be as up on the news as you can. And as much as you can stomach it, even I have been able to take a few news breaks. I've listened to a targeted hour or two of uh, public radio, and then I need to like do a different activity just to keep my own mental health going. So I think we all need to just be cognizant of um, how we're feeling and, and, and keep our mental health good. Yeah. And I'd say, you know, to echo some of this, I'd say you shouldn't worry about walking down third Avenue because bad things can happen there. But when you walk down third Avenue, you should be aware of what, of your environment. And, you know, when you're going into situations, it shouldn't stop you from, uh, you know, being who you are and you shouldn't have undue anxiety, but you should be aware. And this is a situation where we should just be aware that on our defensive frontier, meaning right at the border that we have committed to defend, which is the Poland, Slovakia, um, 
Romanian border of NATO and then the Latvian countries or Latvia, the Baltic countries of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. We have committed to defend that and there is activity going on there. So uh, to Anna's point, I think, uh, you know, you go to REI, get your little, uh, get a, a water filter and get your little tablets. So, that, you know, just as you were going camping, you've got uh, tablets to clean your water. Um, if you were to have an earthquake and all of our water uh, lines were to sever, you might be down uh, without potable water for as many as seven days. So know how you're going to get seven days of water, know how you're going to get seven days of canned soup, Uh, buy some Campbell's soup and throw it in the garage, buy some potassium iodide pills, which help in the case of a radioactive event. They, 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 uh, those are pills. Iodine goes into your thyroid and they're, they block the place where radiation would be absorbed by your body. It would give you contamination sickness. Um, have some duct tape because uh, duct tape is great for everything. And uh, you can get into details about how you might want to tape your doors or as Anna and I were talking before, might put towels under your doors just as they used to talk about in the old days uh, 20 years ago uh, to prevent that kind of thing. But, you know, it doesn't take much to be aware and, and being aware of what's happening in Europe will actually be helpful for an earthquake scenario like Anna mentions. Erica, glad you're on the show with us today. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, you'll notice I've been notably quiet. I mean, I am not an expert on any of this stuff. Um, I do have, you know, a regular emergency supply of stuff, more likely for an earthquake. Um, I, you know, I think we all um, have trouble um, sort of analyzing risk. And uh, so I'm sort of relying on news outlets like KUOW and like Anna's reporting to sort of give me a sense of, well, how great is the risk here? And you know, and if it is so great that, you know, potassium iodide tablets or whatever is not going to be enough, then, you know, I I guess, great, I don't have to worry about that. But if it is relatively low, which it seems to be right now in terms of direct, you know, impacts to us of of radiation, you know, coming over from from Eastern Europe, um, then that's also helpful to know. So, um, you know, it's, it's uh it's it's a, it's a situation where I'm relying on people who are a lot more expert on this than I am to decide uh, what sort of actions I should take or not take. Well, I'm glad we've got all our uh, various expertises, um, but I'm going to move through a, a couple of uh, items about the Ukrainian, uh, the, the Russian invasion that affect us here. And we'll move on, talk about other things here on the Week in Review. But Washington State has been involved through our government, our businesses, our cultural ties. Governor Inslee directed state agencies to cut ties with Russian companies. Now, when we take these actions, sometimes there may be inconvenience for us. But the defense of democracy is totally justifying that inconvenience. It is much better than it is to have delayed warfare. And we need to stop Vladimir Putin starting today. I don't know the legality of canceling contracts as a war protest, uh, but this could also mean disinvesting pension money, treasury funds from Russian uh, entities. Our state Senate approved uh, almost $20 million in refugee aid for any Ukrainians who might come to Washington. Uh, there were there was business activity. Microsoft noticed cyber attacks against Ukraine and updated software, consulted with Ukrainian officials, consulted with NATO. Microsoft's trying to block Russian propaganda from popping up its, in, in its news feeds. Um, Anna, I wondered whether eastern Washington wheat farmers are seeing a business opportunity. Is that a crass thing to ask or is that being discussed? Russia's a big wheat producer and so are we, relatively speaking. 
I just got off the phone with one of my uh, sources in, in wheat country. Um, his name is Dana Heron. And uh, he, you know, he's always driving his truck somewhere when I'm talking to him down the highways of Eastern Washington. And he said, Anna, nobody can find wheat seed right now. There's no wheat seed to be had. And that's because the price is up. And last year's crop was low. It was a bad year for wheat. And so a bad year for wheat seed growers. And so people want to plant more wheat, but they just can't get a hold of it. And so that's a problem when we think about our food prices down the line. If you like crackers, you like your crusty, beautiful artisan loaf in the morning, uh, you know, that that could be a problem uh, coming down the pike later this summer and fall. Yeah. Boeing quit working with Russian airlines on selling them maintenance and technical support. And uh, I was reading in the Seattle Times about how Russia supplies Boeing with a lot of titanium to build planes. Um, let me pause on business stuff. Any other um, sort of observations, questions, reaction? Well, I saw that Expedia is also not allowing um, booking in Russia, which affects uh, VRBO. And um, I, you know, I don't know how many people are taking a vacation in Russia right now, but um, but that's also another um, you know stateside impact that mm-hmm. people are going to see. Mm-hmm. And Expedia controls, by the way, much more than you think they control. <laughs> As I've discovered when booking travel, so um, so that you know that's a that's a that's a pretty significant impact to anybody wanting to travel um, in that area. Mm-hmm. There's a very large. This is not business related, but there's a very large Ukrainian and Russian population here in Eastern Washington in the Tri Cities, and actually they go to church together uh, at this one big large Pentecostal church. And I was speaking to a member of that church, and she said, "Yeah." I don't know how it'll go. You know, everybody wants to be friendly and wants to be, you know, together. But this is a very tough moment for our population and our church. So I think it's really creating not only business problems, but it's it's creating interpersonal problems for a lot of people. Yeah. And statewide, there are something like 100,000 Ukrainian immigrants, one of the bigger populations in the U.S. And uh, here on this side uh, the Space Needle was lit up, uh, Route 520 floating bridge, you know, sort of emphasizing these cultural ties and uh, bar, you know, local bars pouring out bottles of Russian vodka. And Anna, back to you, if I may, because Americans are understandably upset at Ukrainians being invaded. But this week you also reminded us who else was invaded by by uh, newcomers to the what's now the United States. Yeah, I'm working on a larger story about this, but, uh, you know, the Native American population of the United States and Canada were both invaded by uh, uh, powers that wanted to, you know, um, get all their land, all of their riches and uh, drive them into small areas uh, away from their homeland in many cases. And uh, so they are really, really um, sympathetic and empathetic to what's happening in the Ukraine uh, and and the loss of sovereignty uh, possibly in this situation. And the real interesting thing is that they uh, wear a scarf traditionally uh, for many, many decades um, uh, that is from the Ukraine. And so in solidarity, there's a social media movement in which they're wearing these scarves to show their support for their Ukrainian neighbors. And um, I've spoke to a member of the Cree nation who actually told me 
She said, you know, the Ukrainian people have always been kind to us as the Cree nation and where other European or other uh, populations have really been um, very uh, hard against our our religion or hard against our culture. um, The Ukrainians have always had a deep respect for Native Americans in this area. And so they really have some some solidarity with these folks. I actually was gifted one of these scarves and I own it in my wardrobe and I I was not uh, uh, by some Native American people out of uh, the Umatilla tribes and I wasn't aware of the history until just when I started working on on this story. So uh, it was nice. Well, we're going to move on to other aspects of the week's news. Any final final thoughts or uh, comments, contributions on this Ukrainian invasion before we go? I would just say, like, you know, I think many people thought 2022 could not be worse than what we've been through in COVID. Mm. And for those of us of a certain age who can remember the stress of the Cold War years, whether it's the 60s or the 80s, I think it's okay to say, gosh, I'm, I'm already exhausted and now I've got to deal with this and I don't really know how. And um, I think the more we just sort of talk about it and, and elevate it as a thing that we just be, should be mindful of, the better off we will be as a community and putting it under the, you know, just sort of turning off the news all day um, might be better for your mental health, but I think it actually, you know, you do want to just have some level of awareness. You do want to just talk about how you're feeling with people, uh, so that you can surface some of these anxieties and not have them fester. Yeah, thanks, DJ. Thanks to all of you. Uh, it's DJ Wilson, uh, Washington State Wire. We've got Erica Barnett here from Publicola, Anna King from the Northwest News Network. Uh, we've got to take a, a short break here and discuss other events from this week gone by, as we do on the Week in Review. You can check in on Facebook or YouTube and watch the show that we're live streaming. Just search for KUOW Public Radio, and we'll be right back. So glad you're with us on Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke with Publicola's Erica Barnett and formerly of the Washington State Wire, D.J. Wilson. And we've got the Northwest News Network's Anna King with us. Anna, we got a ton of rain early this week here in the Puget Sound area. And that plus the big snow dump earlier this winter, I have not been thinking drought. But apparently this uh, moisture, and I don't know what you're getting on the on the central east side, but... Uh, it sounds like it's not enough, Anna. It's just not enough. Uh, even though we're all kind of feeling dreary and tired from February and, and now we're into March. My mom said something the other day that resonated with me. She's like, I just need to call it a different name, even if it's the same weather. So we're glad that it's not February anymore. Mm. But uh I think the drought part of this is is really serious. Out here in eastern Washington, especially in central Washington, we're in a deficit from last year's drought. And so we're still not made up and we have a long way to go and not very many months to do it. About May 15th, it dries up around here and it starts getting about 90 degrees. So we just don't have that much time before the weather shifts on us to accumulate rainfall. Um I was talking to that farmer, as I said, uh, earlier this morning, and he said, yeah, we're two to four inches away from just a normal crop. That's not even a good crop. We're just talking about a normal crop. So we still need a lot of rain and a lot of snow 
Um, up in the mountains, this big rain event has melted out some of our lower elevation snow already, and we're only about 90% of normal throughout the Cascades. So going into spring, if we have a hot, dry spring, uh, we're going to melt out a lot of that snow really rapidly, and we could be in trouble in basins like the Yakima Basin or the Ellensburg uh, area where they really depend on that snow water melting down and and watering crops and fish. Have any of us said anything comforting so far this hour at all? No. no. Well, it's not it's it's not that we don't want to. Um, okay, what about well, what about what about spring planting season, Anna? Any, uh, you know, you you were saying a little bit about how things are looking, but. Uh, you know, we've got so many, such a diversity of, of crops going on. Um, uh, anything more you want to say about the state of things coming up out of the ground here eventually? I'll talk a little more about this later, but it's so joyful to see the winter wheat spring up a little bit outside of those furrows, the deep, dark furrows of the earth, and then these little sprigs of green, and they're coming up over the furrows. You know, they for a long time, they kind of sit in the bottom of those wells at the bottom of the V of the furrow of earth. But now they're starting to pop above that surface of the earth and show up green and bright. And uh, that tells me that Easter's not far away and spring's are coming. And so it's very joyful. Other crops uh, are starting to be uh, prepared for. Farmers are working the ground. They're putting in fertilizers into the ground, working the soil up, preparing the fields, fumigating those potato fields to get our French fries going. Um, So it's going to happen. It's spring. It's coming. And that is hopeful to me of all this doom and gloom, um, just seeing a tiny sprig of green pop up out of the earth is so joyful. And let me ask you if I can, uh, just like we, there are places to go see the trees turn in the fall. I have stumbled across like on highway two, I've seen, or down in the Palouse, I've seen these wheat fields. They're so amazing. They're like green oceans of amazing color. When are, when is the right time for us West siders to make a trip to go see those wheat fields that are just like rolling, you know, beautiful green. When, when is a good time to go driving? Yeah. You know, when I would go is maybe in about, uh, about two to three weeks, it starts to come up about ankle high and the wind shifts and blows and buffets over the wheat fields. And you see these dense in the field as the wind blows through and there's these amazing storms in the spring over here and so you'll be in bright bright sunshine but on the vista there will be these cobalt drenched clouds that are just pouring down into the field and it's just so amazing to see they look like ocean liners on the on the distance of the horizon because they're so large and dark and brooding And um, just taking a drive between the Tri-Cities and Pullman is a great route to go. If you want to go by Palouse Falls, that's always a spectacular drive. Um, So there's so many areas to go through. You could go down to Walla Walla. There's beautiful wheat fields along the Blue Mountains down there. Um, There's just so many places to go in the Palouse and see this 
beautiful time of year. And then if you can't make it now, don't despair because in July, the, the verasion happens and the, and the uh, turning of the green to golden happens. And you can see these golden fields of wheat right before they're harvested in, in about July. Awesome. That's what I needed. I've got tears in the back of my eyes and I'm not sure why. It could be for about a hundred <laughs> reasons yeah. right now. Uh, one last thing before we leave that in, I just saw in your reporter, sorry, your reporter notes, farmers are working in fertilizers into the crops. Farm wives are tired of them being in the kitchen. And I was wondering, tired of the fertilizer being in the kitchen or the farmers being in the kitchen? No, that you know, uh, winter is kind of a time for rest, and and farmers get a little restless. And there's plenty of really uh, awesome farm women too. And but they, you know, both uh, men and women uh, get kind of tired of uh, just being around in the kitchen, and they want to go to work, and they're ready to go to work. I, I talked to a farmer a little earlier this week who was stuck in the Canary Islands of all things, uh, tested uh, positive for COVID, can't get home, has to quarantine for a while. And he's just chomping at the bit to come back and farm. And so he's just beside himself while his lady partner is just happy as a clam sitting there on a beach in Canary Islands. Poor guy, poor couple. They got to hang out on the Canary Islands (laughs) instead of Washington state in March. So sorry for them. Glad you mentioned COVID. I do want to touch on that. And unless Erica, do you, is anything you want to say about, uh, about waving wheat and green shoots? Look, I'm a, I'm a city girl, so I'm just excited to get to my pea patch and, uh, and see the, uh, the green shoots of, uh, of peas coming up in a month or so. Lovely. I got a note from a listener just now who says, uh, in, in, there will be growth in the spring, which I think is a reference to that. What's the Polish author uh, being, the being there? Remember being there where Chauncey Gardner just keeps saying there's going to be growth in the spring? Anyway, that's, great line. that's yeah. a beautiful thing. Okay, uh, uh, checking in on COVID. Uh, which I know is sounds like more bad news, but you can decide. Some of this might be good to you. There's no more mandatory vaccine verification, for better or worse, in King County restaurants and bars and theaters and gyms. It's up to individual businesses. So, so uh, you got your maybe there'll be vax check bars and and no check bars. Um, in about a week, the statewide indoor mask mandate comes down. Not soon enough for Republicans. Um, you'll still have to wear masks in, you know, hospitals and jails and, and nursing homes and, and on public transportation. That's a federal rule. But individual businesses can, again, decide whether to uh, require masks. Um, I got more to say about uh, sort of incremental COVID news. Any any reaction to uh, any of these some of these mandates coming down soon or now? Well, you know, it feels it feels to me like you know, this is this is a political um, response to what should be a public health question. And, you know, there are there's there's been a lot of complaints throughout COVID about mixed messages um, on what we're supposed to do. And I think this is this is actually a really good example um, where the science tells us that, you know, there's still going to be more variants. It's not like Omicron is the end of the story. And only about half of us are fully vaxxed and boosted. And, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to get those numbers. Usually, um, if you go onto the state website, it says how many people have two shots. But, uh, but the, the science, the best science right now says that you are only really protected against future variants, you know, to the best of their ability to tell by three shots. 
And so, so now we kind of have a situation where we've got like a, two tiers of people, people who are, you know, well protected and people who are not making individual decisions on an individual basis and based on, frankly, a lot of peer pressure to take off your mask um, in a way that I think is, is going to end up endangering people. I mean, including, not for nothing, people who are immunocompromised, uh, very young children. Um, there are still you know, major consequences from getting COVID, even if you don't uh, get hospitalized for a long time or don't die. Long COVID is a real thing. And, um, you know, and there, there are people who uh, are protected by you wearing a mask still. So I, you know, I think that this, this seems a little premature to me, um, but I understand why Inslee um, and other governors and, you know, state legislatures and politicians feel pressured to do it because, you know, people are, you know, as, as the common saying goes, people are sick of wearing masks. So, I mean, I'm sick of wearing a mask, but um, I'm going to continue to do it. That's so well said, Erica. I just, I can't think that I'm ready for this yet. I'm, I'm not ready. I'm digging in my heels. I'm wearing my mask at the grocery store still. I'm just, I'm just not ready to say that it's all okay and, and all y'all oxen free. So um, I had long COVID and I just, I think that having that perspective, it's just so terrible to get it. I haven't gotten it again since I had it the first time, but I'm just not ready to face a reality in which I could get it even a 5% chance that I could get it. I just can't face it again. So it's very, very frightening to me that we're just going to whip off the masks and say, hey, every, everybody go back to normal. I think there's a lot of great stuff there in both of, both of these comments. First, I think that we have all gone through this collective disruption. And for some people, it's really been a trauma. And it's going to take us some time to dig out of that. And uh, it means we have to be careful with ourselves and create intentional spaces to kind of edge back into a world without masks. It means we need to build, continue to build and maintain our communities to support us as we try to grapple with these decisions with as much grace as we can. But Washington state is uh, one of only eight states that still has masks, uh, a mask mandate of any sort. We're one of four states that still has a fine or some sort of trigger of punishment uh, if you don't wear a mask. Most of the rest of the country have moved on. And I think the reality is while we would, I, I would love to see hundred percent vaccination rate and I'd love to see a world without uh, COVID or, or a range of other diseases. I think the reality is, is we're stuck with COVID probably forever. And it's going to be with us like a lot of coronaviruses and we're all going to get it multiple times. Um, and we will have probably fewer and fewer symptoms uh, each time we get it, if we are vaccinated in particular. Uh, but that new reality, as scary as it is, is still reality. And uh, I think part of what we're seeing in Washington State, California, Oregon, other places uh, like Denmark, which is just repealing all, all uh, uh, public health measures entirely. But broadly in the Western world, people are saying, look, if you don't want to be vaccinated, that's your choice. And we have to kind of move forward on uh, with life and figure out how to grapple with this. And it is going to be scary. Uh, but if we all stayed indoors and we, we wore masks, we actually probably would still have COVID spreading everywhere and people would still get it. So we can be super careful or less careful. And, and this is now endemic. It's here with us regardless of how hard we work. 
Well, we find this difference of opinion or, you know, not that you're all uh, uh, at polar opposites, but this range of opinion that you're representing is we I, I asked some of our we have a, a community feedback club here at KUOW. You can sign up to it. Just go to KUOW.org slash feedback. And you had Sam in Tacoma saying too soon on these mandates coming down. I'm in a high risk category for COVID complications. I have felt relatively safe with everyone masked, but even with my vaccinations, if everyone stops masking, I'll be back to a higher risk level. And Sam says if we had health justice, we would be basing our policies on what will protect everyone, not just with those with lower risks. Uh, And uh, Vitaly says not soon enough on these mandates coming down. We're one of the last states to finally recognize the pandemic has ended, given the decline in cases and general not great vaccine efficacy. We never should have enacted mandates in the first place. And on and on, a whole, you know, we, we just got uh, got a lot of um, uh, thoughtful and sometimes passionate response from you. Uh, again, Community Feedback Club is there at KUOW.org slash feedback. Um, the, just before we leave COVID here, as we roll along in the week in review, uh, the school masking situation is still in flux. You had Seattle Public Schools still mandating masks until further notice. They're negotiating with the educators, teachers union. Uh, that union is requesting masks stay on until at least May 1st. Um, uh, some districts, Everett, Lake Washington, my kids are in Mercer Island schools, and that district also said we're going mask optional on March 12th. And my kids were bummed out to hear it. They like the masks. They say they're going to keep with the masks. But uh, then I said to one of my oldest, uh, you know, well, what are the what are the most popular kids doing? She said, oh, their their masks are down already. And uh, you know, and I took me back to peer pressure of my youth and, and all that. So all that's, that's a great important. metaphor, Bill, for what's, what's happening with adults. With adults? How's that? Well, I mean, this is the, the sort of Washington state being one of only eight states. Oh, we got to do it because, yeah. you know, because most everybody has done it. So, you know, if everybody's done it, then we need to, too. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, we're we're not unsusceptible to peer pressure as adults. Interesting. State level peer pressure. I think the comment about kids is super important because a lot of times we don't ask our kids how anxious they're feeling or what their mental health is like. And of course, we all know that the the kids were not all right to begin with. The mental health issues with our kids were already uh, extraordinarily terrible. Then COVID hit and amplified that for a lot of kids. And so the idea for many of them who've now had two years of masks and fear that all of a sudden it's safe to have your, your mask off that, that strikes a lot of anxiety for in the hearts of a lot of kids. And, you know, even if they're not your kids, I encourage people to just say, Hey, what do you think about that? And give them an opportunity to talk about it. Cause they need to process this stuff too. Yeah, totally agree. Thank you, DJ Wilson, uh, formerly of Washington state wire. We're with Anna King of the Northwest news network and uh, public Cola's editor and publisher, Erica Barnett is with, me, Bill Radke, we're all online, you know, being live streamed. You can go to uh, Facebook or YouTube and search KUOW Public Radio. Let's take another quick break and get back with more of the news of the week here on Week in Review. Don't go away. You rely on this podcast to stay informed and connected with your local community. And we rely on you. Without listener support, this show simply wouldn't exist. Be a part of the team that makes this show possible by donating to our home, K-U-O-W. It only takes a minute. Donate at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thank you.
Discussing the week's news here on KUOW's Week in Review, I'm Bill Radke. There were two more fatal shootings this week in downtown Seattle around 3rd and Pike, 3rd and Pine. And Erica Barnett, Seattle's mayor, Bruce Harrell, is uh, addressing this. What did he say? Well, he had a press conference this morning and um, and basically announced um, a number of arrests at two locations, 12th and Jackson, um, which we you know already knew about, um, and 3rd and Pine which is a perennial hotspot for um, various kinds of, uh, you know, drug crimes, shootings, um, et cetera, going back many decades. Yes. Um, And, you know, um, Harold got up there and sort of riffed on some of his campaign themes, said, you know, this is that I inherited this terrible situation and the city's a disgrace right now and it's incredibly dangerous and, um, you know, and we're going to do what we can to fix it. Um, so far, um, that seems to consist primarily of hotspot policing, you know, sort of flooding the zone with a bunch of um, police officers to prevent crime from happening in a specific location and then arresting people and prosecuting them, um, in some cases for felonies and a lot of cases for misdemeanors, which aren't really being heard by courts right now. So kind of, you know, are arguably contributing to a backlog that existed, you know, before. Um, he kind of uh, vaguely. I, Erica, do you mind if I ask you about something? Oh, yeah. You just said sorry. I don't, I don't want to interrupt. I want to hear more. But since you you talked about flooding the zone and hot spots, do we? And I know you cover this so well. Do we have evidence for whether that uh, hot spot, uh, you know, policing moves crime around, prevents crime? Uh, are are 12th and Jackson and Third and Pine, you know, stolen goods markets related? What can you tell us about that? Well, the city says, to answer your last question first, the city does say that they're related. Um, you know, I, I don't have evidence one way or another on that. But, you know, certainly there are there are stolen crime markets that are happening and they're visible. You can see them, you know, you could see them at those two locations before these arrests. Um, all evidence from the past is that from, you know, all kinds of past efforts at hotspot policing, you know, that have happened specifically at this location that they announced this week, Third and Pine, um, suggests that it just moves it elsewhere. Um, you, uh, it's very difficult to, um, sort of scare and arrest your way out of crime that is, you know, often caused by, I mean, it has underlying causes, right? So, um, in this case, you're talking about a lot of addiction. Um, you're talking about a lot of people who, you know, have been driven into the illicit economy. And I'm not talking about the sort of, you know, kingpins or whatever at the top of the food chain here, but people who are in the illicit economy um, because of desperate situations that got more desperate during COVID. Um, And just real briefly, what I was going to say about treatment, um, Harold mentioned that, you know, he thinks that um, people, you know, probably should get into treatment. And he referenced a couple of programs that are that are working um, with people uh, in the criminal justice system. Just Care is one of them. Um, but he didn't say anything about expanding that. He just said, you know, it's important for people to get into treatment and it's important to get the help that they need. But, you know, sort of alluded to social workers going out on site after the arrests happened, but nothing specific. And I, and I think that's because there isn't anything specific yet. OK, I have one more question and then and maybe Anna or DJ do, maybe not. But um, what is you mentioned what the what the city prosecutor can't necessarily do and you tied it to covid. What can and will do you think SPD, city prosecutor, county prosecutor uh, do differently? 
Yeah. I mean, Ann Davison, the city attorney was there and she said, you know, we're with these prosecutions and I don't have the exact quote. Um, unfortunately, my notes crashed. So, mm. oh, actually I do have it. Sorry. She said these arrests and prosecutions will help disrupt the cycle of addiction and human suffering. So right there, I mean, you see arrests and prosecutions. Um, you know, it's arguable whether that is a new approach, but they're certainly going to do more arrests and more prosecutions. Um, again, in the past, I don't think we have uh, very good evidence that arresting people works very well. We can only, um, I mean, even if people end up going through the system, they have to wait for a very long time to see it, to, to go to court and then to be jailed. And then once they're jailed, misdemeanors, you know, you can only, you can't keep people more than a year. But I mean, you're literally talking about arresting people, letting them back out onto the street and then, you know, a process whereby they will eventually be seen in a courtroom. So it's not a very um, effective way of, of, of sort of addressing things in the short term. Um, I mean, it is effective, you know, in terms of cleaning up a corner, so to speak, to have, a you know, 20 police cars there. But again, it just tends to move the problem somewhere else. You know, Eric, I, I have a question actually for you. Um, it seems like Mayor Harrell is having some relative to success working with SPD relative to former Mayor Durkin. And I wonder if in hindsight, um, do we think that maybe the Seattle Police Department, because of Mayor Durkin's former role uh, as federal prosecutor and and um, and working to reform the department. Do you think that she was maybe not set up to fail, but that SPD treats the mayor now differently than they treated the mayor before? Meaning they treat Mayor Harrell better than they treat Mayor Durkin. I, th I think you might be onto something there. I mean, I do think that there is, you know, a, a positive rapport between the uh, the current police chief, um, Adrian Diaz, who, you know, is reportedly the only candidate to, to he's interim right now, but reportedly the only candidate to succeed Carmen Best. Um, you know, I, I think um, Durkin, you know, was was dealt a, a poor hand in some ways, um, but, you know, also handled herself very poorly in other ways um, with with the protests two years ago. Um with just kind of the, the the culture of her administration being incredibly secretive and, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Um, and I think, you know, Harold came in pretty aggressively saying, you know, we're going to beef up the police department. We're going to, you know, unleash them and let them do their jobs. And, you know, and this, this is all in, in, in quotes, um, you know, it's not me saying that, but that is sort of the characterization that, that he, that he played when he was running for mayor. And now you see, you know, with these press conferences, again, wasn't really a big announcement today, but it was an opportunity for the mayor to stand up there with Ann Davison, city attorney, with the police chief and say, we're doing something and this, the thing we're doing is arrests. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, if, if you're the police chief, that is a big morale boost and, you know, a big vote of confidence for the mayor. Thank you for that. I got to keep time here. We've got Erica Barnett and DJ Wilson. Also, Anna King, who is in the the Tri-City areas today, I assume, Anna, and, mm -hmm. and, and making me cry about, about waving wheat and, and, and Palouse Falls and <laughs> Blue Mountains and all of it. So let, let's move to state level before we start to wrap up the show and, and find something to smile about. Uh, we had DJ, I know you you have have followed the state legislative session very closely. We've got some bill they're in a short session, some bills dying, some bills surviving. Uh, state capital gains tax lost around in court this week. What do you want to what do you want to tell? What's the number one thing we should know right now about what's going on at the state level? 
the legislature will be done on the 10th. Yeah. <laughs> We're almost through it. I would say the, the biggest thing that will impact uh, the conversation is that lawsuit, uh, the judge's decision on the capital gains tax saying that it is in fact income and therefore is unconstitutional. We knew that was coming. That'll now go probably to an appellate court in Spokane. It's an open question about whether we'll actually ever make it to the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court can just say, look, this is long established precedent and we don't need to continue to see this. Uh, they've done that in recent years with Seattle, uh, city of Seattle and a similar uh, measure. So it's not clear it'll go to the Supreme Court, but this will continue to be part of the conversation. I think in terms of policy, the most interesting thing to me is that we've got a pretty significant transportation budget that we, or we are about to have one uh, finalized. We've struggled to get a solid transportation budget, uh, an aggressive one in recent years. The one coming out looks like it'll be $16 billion over 16 years. It'll include no gas tax, which is new and interesting. That's new. We talked about this last week, a tax on the gas and the diesel that we refine in Washington and ship out to Oregon, Idaho, Alaska, where they were not appreciating that tax idea. Absolutely. And uh, we have, a, I think, interesting to me, a significant amount of funds for the electrification of our ferry fleet, which is interesting. I, I think it's notable that most of the projects are in Democratic districts this time. This There's not going to be any Republican votes for this. Mm. Republicans weren't terribly involved. They were not invited to be involved in the negotiations. So this will be mo- a significant amount of monies from the operating budget. That's not usually something that happens. It usually comes from a separate budget. Mm. So there's some interesting things here for policy geeks. <laughs> yeah, and Washingtonians too. Uh, any right. Any comments or questions on... What your lawmakers uh, are trying to do and courts are doing. Well, one more, more, one other thing I'd add is um, the uh, Inslee budget. Um, he was out in Seattle um, a couple days ago um, here in Seattle um, at a tiny house village, sort of touting um, these tiny house shelters as um, a housing solution. And I thought that, um, it, you know, this was sort of part of his uh, his promotion of his big budget proposal to spend 800 or so million dollars on various solutions to homelessness. Um, but I, I thought that was a very interesting uh, turn of phrase because um, we've sort of moved to a point where um, the state is, you know, the state and local governments are back to, you know, wanting to fund shelter first instead of housing first. And I think that um, Inslee's big budget proposal for homelessness really reflects that. Mm. Any comment on that, Wilson? I, you know, I was thinking actually, as Erica was talking, that uh, housing is like a lot of issues. And David Postman, former journalist at the Times, a former chief of staff for the governor, said, you know what, in the city of Seattle, I wish I could work in city cities of Seattle politics because you have so much diversity. You go from A to A. <laughs> but in Olympia, you go from A to Z. And I'd love to work in Seattle politics. And, you know, housing at the state level has been it's not just on shelter and, and housing uh, and homelessness, but also single family zoning and transit oriented development and trying to force cities to take more uh, population density. That's been going on for 20 years. And the association of Washington cities is a strong, powerful lobby with a diversity of uh, advocates in both sides of the aisle. And every year the cities push back on the state, trying to tell them how to take more density, how to add more, um, flexibility in single family zones. And uh, that A to Z spectrum is just, it's, it's, it's a tough nut to crack in Olympia. Okay. Well, this show is zoned for one hour of length. So I've got to uh, 
start to to bring it to a close, and we always uh, end on something that made us hopeful, something that made us smile. That seemed in uh, especially short supply this week, and that may be true for a while. We'll see. Um, so I just want to contribute that we had a baby this week. And by we, I mean, I, Eric, I really enjoyed your facial expression right there. I'm actually, like, what? <laughs> I'm talking we, need to, about, we need to talk offline. We do need to see each other more often. Um, I, I'm talking about we local orca lovers because in the J-pod of Southern Resident Orcas, a calf is born with the adorable name J-59. And uh, I think Kanye West also has a child with that name. But uh, Mama Cat, Mama Mama Orca was seen swimming nearby, and they seem healthy. And that's the first J-Pod calf in about a year and a half, so that was kind of nice to see. Anybody else hoping or smiling about anything? My, speaking of babies, my beautiful, kind, loving, creative, smart, amazing six-year-old daughter turns seven tomorrow, Mari Elizabeth Wilson. Happy birthday, baby girl. I love you. Happy birthday, Mari. I'll just go back to what I was, uh, what I, what I mentioned earlier, which is that, um, you know, even if we don't have a lot of reason to hope from the news, um, it is gardening season and I'm about to get into a new pea patch at an undisclosed location, which I am very excited about. Um, so my orientation is tomorrow and I'm uh, pea patch program is, uh, is a great city of Seattle program. If you live in the city, um, you, uh, volunteer eight hours a year, pay a little fee, um, and you get your own garden. It's and awesome. For newcomers to Seattle, that's not PEA. It's not necessarily that you're Correct. growing peas in your patch. Right. But peas grow very well here if you're a newcomer. Yes, you certainly could. Anna, <laughs> speak back to where th- things growing, which was my, which is my happy place this, <laughs> this hour. Uh, anything at all making you smile or, or hope or dance? Yeah, well, happy birthday, Mari, and I'm excited about uh, the pea patch. And I just, I just think that um, I'm really excited about the growth in farm country out here. Uh, the apple buds are starting to swell, and they're starting to get ready to burst open with these beautiful blossoms and with all these furly little tiny green leaves that just like are all crunchy at the beginning when they first come out and then they slowly spread out and get all um, unfurled like a like a sailboat sail and I'm just so excited that they're coming out and um, I'm also just gonna go back to that spring wheat coming out of the furrow if you've been at the bottom of the furrow in this dark soil earth and and clouds looming overhead take heart there is the sun break coming and you are going to see the top of that furrow as you grow and spring forward into the spring. Yeah. Anybody else been at the bottom of that furrow? We are built to climb. Anna, thank you so much. And and I'll, I'm also smiling just because I, I get this time with you and, uh, you know, uh, checking in on the week and just kind of check it in on each other. Thank you so much for being our, our show this week. Thanks for doing Glad this, Bill. Yeah. Thank it's you. It's honor to be with you. We love it. That's Anna King with the Northwest News Network. She's over in the Tri-Cities. And we've got DJ Wilson, former CEO and publisher of the Washington State Wire and founder or co-founder, at least editor, publisher, uh, big shot at Publicola, uh, Erica Barnett joining us. And the show's produced by Kevin Kniestet with Bernard Wellett pushing all the right buttons. And uh, we've got social media and live streaming support from Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that you've listened. 
Uh, Bill Radke here. Have a great week. And uh, even if it's not the ideal week, we'll get together. We'll figure out what happened uh, a week from now when you join me again on Week in Review. Looking forward to it.